journeying through the book of Acts, and we continue where we left off last week in chapter 11, and I'm appreciative of um, Bobby reading that for us. I don't know about you, but sometimes when someone else is reading it, uh, different things stick out, and and I love that, so I appreciate that. Um, But the book of Acts, where the church was born, right, we looked at that at the beginning as Jesus rose again, and then he told them to tarry in Jerusalem until the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. And, and we know that that happened on Pentecost. And so the Lord is working. And, and we're here because of the book of Acts today, aren't we? And it's cool that we see the church um, growing in Jerusalem, uh, the Christians the, the forming. And then now it's starting to go beyond Jerusalem. And that's where we left off last week as we are looking at Antioch. And so we'll pick it up there as Bobby was reading. Hey, just one quick note, though, before we start uh, talking about going throughout the entire world and sharing the gospel. Um, I just got a text during the worship service that our team landed in Budapest Airport safely. So thankful for that. And we're excited to hear what the Lord is going um, and has already started to do through that team. And so two things that we're going to look at this morning as we um, expound upon Acts chapter 11 and finishing it out in Acts chapter 12. Um, First of all, as we finish out Acts chapter 11 in verses 19 through 30, we're going to see how the gospel continues to spread in the darkest places. The gospel continues to spread in the darkest places. And then in chapter 12, we're going to look at God's sovereignty in the midst of opposition. God's sovereignty in the midst of opposition. So look again in chapter 11, uh, verses 19 down through 30 there. And you notice, again, we're, we're talking about how the gospel is spreading in the darkest of places. Remember, the Gentiles are starting to be saved in Jerusalem. God has been, um, through the church there, breaking down different walls and the prejudices between the Jews and the Gentiles. God's doing this work. And we read in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, one verse before this, we see there that when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. So there, the Jews are now saying, yes, the Gentiles can be saved. God has, this is true. This is a work of the Lord. And so those walls are, are breaking down. And it had begun in Jerusalem, this work, But they haven't yet gone beyond Jerusalem. They haven't gone from there yet. And remember, as we look in verse 19, as Bobby read for us, it says that now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. See, the Lord intended not for um, the gospel to say, stay only in Jerusalem, but do you remember that Jesus in the Great Commission said that they were going to Jerusalem, and right? And it was continued to go to the utter ends of the earth. But the church had been disobedient in that. They hadn't yet gone. And this work had begun, but the Lord used persecution to scatter the Christians. One of those places being Antioch. We started to look at this last week um, with Tim, but a little bit just to know the background of Antioch and why we are saying how the gospel spreads in the darkest places. You see, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. You had, of course, Rome. You had Alexandria down in Egypt, and then Antioch being the third largest city. 
And if you know a little bit about it, why it's considered um, at that time such a dark place, there was, it was an epicenter of paganism or, or of worshiping other gods. And part of that worship would be through sexual immorality. There would be prostitutes in the temple there. And, and it would just, they, I was reading some of it, and you know there would be these prostitutes that run out at night, and the men of the city would go and chase after the prostitute, and then if they caught them, they could have sexual relations with them. And we're not talking about like married men. Like just society was completely um, upside down and backwards. And it was a dark, a dark place. Yet the Lord had used the persecution to send Christians to that place. And just thinking a step back, it isn't necessarily always persecution in our lives, but isn't it interesting how you can look back oftentimes in our life and we see how God had used difficulties, persecution, trials, tribulations in our lives to, to move us, to move us, to put us in a position. Maybe it's, it's um, because we were unwilling to go, but sometimes that's just God's sovereignty to put us there for a purpose. And so Antioch wouldn't be a place that the Christians in Jerusalem would say, that's where I'm going to go, and that's where I'm going to share the gospel. That, that place is ripe. They need to hear the gospel. They would probably, the, the context is, is really um, saying to us, that's the place where I don't want to go. That's a dark place. There's no way the folks in Antioch would be saved. They don't want to, yeah, I know that the gospel, I agree. You know, Jesus came and, and he died for the world, but there's no way that they would or could be saved. Yet the Lord had them there for a purpose. And notice as they were there, they're in Antioch. Did you catch what they were doing? If you look again, um, in verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of belie- believed. But what was right before that, catch at the end of verse 20, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. So think about it. What would be your tactic what would be our game plan, quote-unquote, that we or, um, would come up with for the mission team that would go to Antioch, right? Okay, let's think about this. How are we going to be relatable? How can we reach them where they are? How do we attract a society that's so dark? No, those who are there, those who went to Antioch, we see that they simply shared the Lord Jesus with them. They simply shared the Lord Jesus. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. And, and guys, this is our message to the dark world that we're in. That's what we are called to do today, to preach the Lord Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning, and that's each of us, in a dark place, if we are in the world, we want them to know the gospel of Jesus. We don't need a program. We don't need lights. We don't need all the tactics. We don't need the, the, the fancy graphics, and all, although we're appreciative of that. But that isn't our hope. That's not the core of why and what we go with. We go preaching the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul said, right, in 1 Corinthians 2. And put a marker here. Let's turn there. Just 1 Corinthians 2, a couple books over. You go Acts, Romans. And notice what Paul said. Because eventually, we'll bring this full circle later, but Paul is going to go to Antioch. And that's going to, Antioch now, this dark place, will become the ministry hub of, of the different missionary journeys that Paul's going to go out on. But in, 
in 1 Corinthians 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. And there Paul, he writes to the Corinthian church, a, a, a place that would be similar, comparable to Antioch, a dark, dark place, a very worldly place. Paul says there, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of the wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the dark world around us, notice verse 21, how the work is accomplished. Did you catch that? It says there, I'll read it again. We read it earlier. But the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Notice as they simply shared Jesus, as they shared the gospel of Jesus, it was the Lord who did the work. It was the hand of the Lord that was with them. And it was God who saved. And it is God who saves today. We are simply called to share. And, and, and this is so encouraging for you and I, at least for me, because did you notice who it was that was, the Lord was using to share this message? Look again at that text. Who is named? There's no one named. Notice, if, if it was me, I would think, okay, well, who are the big hitters that we need to send to the darkest place, right? From, a, from maybe a, a strategic perspective or military, we got to get the big generals out there. They're going to know exactly the game plan. They're going to have the experience. But no, it was those, they're not even named Christians who didn't have necessarily the theological training and background, but God had moved them to Antioch. And the simple ones as they were there, the unnamed saints, shared Jesus Christ. And it was the Lord who worked in and through them. And this is freeing because I'm really a nobody, you know? And I love, I love that the Lord uses from the world's perspective, the quote-unquote nobodies, because it's in that that he's the most glorified, isn't he? They know it's not, it's not the excellency of speech. It's not their theological uh, debate or the way that they deliver the message, right? How they can craft that. Sure, the Lord can use that, but the Lord wants to use you. You see, because we're in a world that's dark. We're in a world that needs Jesus, that needs the hope, that needs the life, the righteousness that is found in him alone. And so this opens the door for each of us to be used. For the Lord to use you where you are as you sim simply share Jesus. Continuing on though, the Lord adds to the church. And then look again in verses 23, excuse me, 22 through 24. The Lord had done this work. He has begun this work. He's adding to the church. He's, he's moving in this dark place as they simply share Jesus. But notice now, the church that was in Jerusalem, right? This is kind of the headquarters. This is where the movement started. The church was born in Jerusalem. They hear word about this. Can you think about that? Like, where's maybe the darkest place around here? And you would say, man, are people really being saved in, in this part of my town? Or in that, that group of people in, in our nation or in my family, right? And we become a little bit skeptical often, when we hear that. And so the church back in Jerusalem, they hear about this work that is going on in Antioch, about what the Lord is doing. And so 
they have to check it out for themselves. Is, is this real? Is this legitimate? Is God really moved and now working in a city like that? Right? They're still wrestling with the idea of Gentiles can be saved, but Gentiles in Antioch, there's pagan worship. That's like, again, one of the epicenters of the Roman Empire. So what do they do? This, the church in Jerusalem, they, they, they send a fellow by the name of Barnabas to go and to see if what is going on in Antioch is real. Is it genuine? Is this true, Barnabas, of these reports that we're hearing? And we know a little bit as we've been studying through Acts, the context and, uh, of who Barnabas was. Remember that we read earlier in Acts that Barnabas was a Levite, meaning that he was of the tribe of Levi. Levi he would be... Um, serving in the temple. Remember the Levites, it tells us in the Old Testament that they were not to have um, any lot. The lot that they were given um, when the land was divided, they weren't given a possession, but there were Levitical cities because the Lord says that I am your lot. It's not, it's not the physical possession that it's me. And the Lord had been working in Barnabas's life, and remember that earlier, that it says that he sold the land that he had, which he shouldn't have had land, and he gave it to the disciples there to be used. And so God has been working in the life and in the heart of Barnabas. We're also told um, that he, he's from Cyprus back in Acts 4.36. So perhaps even um, the church in Jerusalem, they knew, hey, Barnabas, you know, we, we read there, remember in Antioch, there were some from Cyprus. Maybe he knows some of those folks. Maybe it's distant relatives or some family friends. And not only uh, you know, what we know of Bar- Barnabas' character, but he knows them. He knows their background. He grew up with them. He can go. He'd be a good one to send and tell us if this work is genuine or not. But one of the things that we love about Barnabas is that he's so encouraging. He's so comforting. And, and there's just this, this something about Barnabas' character and life. He's able con- to connect others, to stand with others, as we're going to see when nobody else would. So Barnabas goes and in verse 23, let's read again what we, said, what we um, see. It says that when he came, when Barnabas came to Antioch and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And, and that's where we left off last week. And he encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. So notice when Barnabas goes, hey man, he sees the grace of God. We, Tim was talking about that, but the grace of God, the, the grace of God that there's folks in that type of culture that, that maybe were saved out of this extreme um, worldliness, this extreme darkness. God had been gracious to save them, to call them into the kingdom of his light. That he was glad as he saw the grace of God in the church there, right? Freely giving, freely loving there. But notice, what did Barnabas do? It says he was glad, but he, first of all, encouraged them. And he says, he encouraged them with purpose of heart. And here's what he encouraged them to do, that they should continue with the Lord. That they should continue with the Lord. What we read here, what, what um, Luke is telling us, is that Barnabas strongly urged those in Antioch to continue with, or the idea being cleave to the Lord Jesus. Think about it. The simplicity, they simply shared Jesus. Now Barnabas is saying, simply keep with Jesus. 
Again, put yourself in, that, in his shoes. And I think about myself. If I was Barnabas, I'd probably say, okay, you're saved. Now, you want to stay away from all the temples. Maybe you don't want to go out when it's dark if that's when the prostitutes are running around now, right, in that city. And we'd come up with this list of, of things to do, of things not to do, but that's not the message that Barnabas shared. Barnabas said, continue with and cling to the Lord Jesus. See, it was Jesus alone who saved them. And it was Jesus alone who saved you and I. And as the church, guys, this is the message for us. We're to stay with Jesus, cleave to Jesus. That's an exhortation for each of us. All that we need is found in Jesus. See, it is Jesus alone who saved us. It wasn't Jesus plus anything else. And it's Jesus alone who keeps us. I like one pastor who put it this way. He said, it is true that you have not laid hold of all that is in Jesus yet. He's given us all, but we have not laid hold of it all. You and I need through the years to develop what we have in Jesus. But there's nothing to be added beyond Jesus. They were not to simply to come to church and to enjoy fellowship in the feelings of glory and excitement that knowing the Lord gave them. They were to remember that they needed to learn more of Jesus. They had to seek the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ intelligently through the word of God. And they did not need beyond, they did not need beyond Jesus. They needed to know more of Jesus. So Barnabas exhorted them to work intelligently at learning about Jesus. And what a word for us. Yes, we are to come. And yes, fellowship. I, I love fellowship. I do. I love coming and I love sitting downstairs and eating a, a bagel with you and having a coffee. I love sitting down and talking afterwards. And I love our family reunions or community dinners. It's amazing. And that's an important body or part of the body, the function of the church. But it's not just to be that. We are here to seek Jesus. The emphasis, the important uh, of this whole service is the teaching of the word of God. It's surrounded about um, all encompassing the word of God. Why? Because it is through the word of God where Jesus reveals himself. Not man's ideas about Jesus or about who the Lord is, but who he has revealed himself to be in his word. And we come Sundays and Wednesdays and you at your, at your house in your devotional life. It's to know more of him to grasp more and more of who he is and the glories of our Lord. That's our purpose. And we don't ever want to get sidetracked beyond that. You know, it's so easy to, to veer off and, 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 and to get sidetracked beyond Jesus or add to Jesus. Guys, we're here simply to preach Jesus to the world and to know Jesus alone and to encourage one another in our body, our fellowship here. Are you cleaving to Jesus? Am I cleaving to Jesus? That message is still relevant in what we are to share with the church today. And notice the result of all of this. Okay, preach Jesus in the darkest places. When they're saved, cling to Jesus in all parts of life and look at the result. We see here um, that through all of this, and we'll get to this, but the world testified of the work of Jesus in their life. 
Did you catch that? It says down in verse um, 26, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice, it wasn't that the church in Antioch, they said, okay, well, there's a, uh, a number of us here. The, the right thing to do is now we need to have a church naming committee and we need to figure out what everybody, how can we be relevant? How can they identify us? How can we know what we are? But they were simply living out the, the reality of the work that Jesus had accomplished in and through their hearts and being born again. And it was the darkness, it was the world, it was the, those in Antioch who called them Christians. They didn't say, hey, this is what we want to be called. But there was no denying the genuineness of their faith by the world around them. See, that's, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't fake. It wasn't, yes, let's just put Jesus up there and, and, and you know, um, the world will know that. But their lives were changed. Their lives were different. And only the Lord can change lives like that. Only He can change hearts like that. And so the world testifies of that. And, and I love this too. I don't want to um, overlook it or, or blow by it. Seeing what was going on in Antioch, Barnabas, he realized and he knows the perfect person to bring and to continue to minister in Antioch, doesn't he? Go back up to verse 25. It says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and they taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So there's this work going on. Barnabas had gone up um, by commission of, of the church in Jerusalem. He's testifying of the reality of the work that Jesus ha- was doing and saving, right? The, the word was moving as they were sharing Jesus. And Barnabas says, we need help. Who would be a great fit to come and to minister to these new Christians, this, this work that God um, is doing and is establishing in Antioch? And he says, I know. Paul, or the text says Saul, Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, who we know of, the Apostle Paul. This is, I, when I was reading through this, I was so encouraged by this. You know that Barnabas was familiar with Paul. He already had some interaction with Paul. Uh, go to the left to chapter 9. Let's, let's refresh ourselves of, of the Paul and Barnabas is their relationship. And in Acts chapter 9, um, we're going to look at verse 26 through 30. And we see it says that when Saul had come to Jerusalem, after this is after Saul when Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. When he had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he was a disciple. And why was that? Remember, it was Paul. Um, it was Saul who was breathing threats out of his mouth. He, it was Paul, um, it was Saul at that time, who had um, letters, right, to go and, and, and to uh, kill Christians. It was Saul who, when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed, who was holding the coats of those who were stoning him. See, the disciples at this time, what do you mean? That's Saul. That's Saul of Tarsus. This, he's not a disciple. I don't care what you say. And, and I would be leery of that too. That would be difficult. It, he's probably just putting on a disguise to get in and to see really what's coming in, right? Like a double, double agent. He's going to say he's one of us, but he's really not to come and to kill us. 
But notice it says, but Barnabas. Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that how the Lord had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him out to Tarsus. So notice the background of Paul and Barnabas' relationship was that when nobody wanted to stand with Paul, when no one believed that the work that God had done in, in, in Paul's heart, that Paul was saved, that, that this was a true reality, it was Barnabas who was willing to stand with Saul and say, I, I've seen, I, I've, I've been with this man. What God has done is, is real. When nobody else, Barnabas was willing to do that. And sometimes the Lord asks us to do that, right? To stand with, with the one who others say, there's no way that person's saved to stand next to them, to be, how, how encouraging would that be if you were Saul? I mean, nobody thinks that this is real and, and you know, they're probably, I can see why, right? And you feel condemned and you feel alone, but, but Barnabas, that, the son of encouragement, willing to stand with them and, and testify to the apostles, this is real. And, and so when, when Paul was preaching there at, at Jerusalem and um, disputing with the Hellenist, that, that would be those who, um, grew up in Greek culture, but necessarily weren't of a Greek background. Um, they tried to kill Paul, and Paul, they sent him back to Tarsus. Okay, so that's the context. That's how we got to Tarsus, and that's what, how we bring it back to um, in Acts chapter 11, when in verse 25, then Barnabas departed to Tarsus. Okay, so that's how we got there. But notice this, and, and I never realized this. Do you know, remember when Paul was first saved? It says that he went out to the wilderness and he was out there and the Lord ministered to him for about three years of time. So there's this time in the wilderness and the desert before um, even what we just read where Paul was kind of in just set aside and being prepared by the Lord. But there's seven more years from that time that Paul was in Tarsus, excuse me. Seven years. Ten years in total. Paul was saved and, and and the Lord just had him in, in um, I can't think of the word off the top of my head, but in, in this obscurity, that's what I was looking for, right? Just in, in Tarsus. We're not told of anything that was going on at that time. We're not, um, you know, maybe the Lord was ministering um, to and through him there. But this time of obscurity, yet all that time, you know, Paul was just serving the Lord there, whatever that may have looked like. And it took that one person who came back. Man, I remember this man. I, I remember this man as, as Barnabas is up in Antioch. He, he was disputing with the Hellenists and there was this, those in the Greek culture up in Antioch. I, I remember the reality of his heart and, and what the Lord has done. I, I should go get him and, and bring him. He'd be perfect for this. And see, all that time, Paul had no idea what, was God, what the Lord was doing and preparing him to be brought to Antioch. He had no idea, and he didn't lose heart. And sometimes that's us. Sometimes we feel like we're in obscurity. Where I, you know, it seems like I've been rejected, or or I, I thought maybe you could use me. But he just has us in this quiet 
place of preparation. And then sometimes there's just that one knock that comes, and the Lord would have you to be used here. And Paul was willing to go. Just go with Barnabas. And sometimes, so the application is twofold, right? Sometimes we're the Barnabas, where God would have us to stand with others to encourage them and to say, hey, you'd be a perfect fit for this ministry. And, and, and you know, in the Lord, would the Lord be calling you to that? And, and we see that need and, and we connect the dots and, and get them plugged in there. But at other times, we're like Saul, man, just faith, being faithful where we are, waiting for the Lord and saying yes to the Lord when he asks us to come and to serve and wherever that may be. Um, but I love God's, just the picture of this, God working and when there's seemingly nothing going on. And notice that as, as Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch, it says that for a whole year they taught the church. They, they taught them there. They taught them from, yes, they didn't have um, all of the New Testament like we do today, but from the Old Testament even there. They were teaching them. And remember, I love this, that on, in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus meets these two disciples who are discouraged and just downstrod. And it says that Jesus, starting with the law and the prophets and, and, and the Psalms, he expounded upon them about himself. See, even having the Old Testament, they could teach the church there about Jesus. And, and kind of connecting the dots to uh, one of the themes, we sh simply share Jesus. We teach Jesus through the entirety of the Bible. And I love, I love just seeing that. And, and this reality, the word working and the disciples first being called Christians at Antioch, and, and that's convicting to me too. You know, I need to ask myself, what does the world testify about my life? Not who do I want them to say I am, but what do they actually say? Who would they say? My coworkers, my neighbors, the person at the store that I interact with. Would they know that I'm a Christian by that interaction without me ever saying something? If I didn't tell them that, one pastor said this way, and this is convicting. He said that many people today are willing to say that I am a Christian, but would balk at saying they are believers or they are disciples disciples, excuse me. They are cultural Christians who have not experienced a saving commitment to Jesus Christ. See, we call ourselves a Christian nation. I don't know, I, you know, I know that we're moving away from that. But there's a difference uh, between just being called or kind of being in the, the, the social circle of a Christian, yes, I'm a Christian, than being a disciple of Jesus. And you aren't a true, and I'm not a true Christian if I'm not a disciple of Jesus. So this reality, the world testifying of um, what God had done in their heart, but notice this, their actions also testify in a very specific way. Look again at verse 27. In those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up, and he sh and showed by the Spirit that there were, were, was going to be a great famine throughout, throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the, the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Ju Judea. 
And this they did they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here we see the love is the outflow of the genuineness of their faith. We are told that a prophet, uh, some prophets, they come to Antioch, one of them being named Agabus. And so I, I know that probably one of the questions that first popped in your head, okay, a prophet? Like this is, this is not Old Testament prophets, right? We're in the New Testament now. We're in the church age. What's, what's this prophet or this gift of um, prophecy? Well, we know that a prophet um, can speak forth God's word in two ways. That the prophet can be um, foretelling, speaking, speaking or foretelling a future event that's going to happen. But a prophetic word can also f- be forthtelling, or it s- speaks of God's word, right? Speaking God's word itself. And so it would seem that the, uh, this prophet had the gift of, of foretelling the future. And he says, he said um, by the Spirit, that there was going to be a great famine, a great famine in, in the land. And we know that his, history tells us that this famine occurred in uh, 45 through 46 AD. And it was so severe that in Jerusalem that there was many who were dying because they simply didn't have the funds to buy what little food was available. Can you imagine the, the price of food that would skyrocket because of inflation, the lack of food available, everybody wanting it, right? So there would be this price gouging. Many, many, many were dying. And notice, he, he comes, he shares this prophetic word that the Spirit had given him. And the Antioch church, they wanted to give to the church in Jerusalem. They wanted to help. They weren't commanded to help. There's a difference. The prophet didn't come and say, you must give. You, you must give and, and help the church. But he simply shared what, what was going on by the Spirit. And the response of the heart of those who in Antioch were, hey, we, we, have, we have some funds. Let's, let's give. Let's give and let's send it to the church. Let's help those in Judea that are in need. We can help here. Notice, too, that there's no bitterness. You know, have you ever kind of, you know, someone comes and they, they kind of are filling you out. They, they want to see, is this real? And what's this guy really up to? You know that they've been sent. That, that's what Barnabas was sent up there. I'm sure Barnabas, knowing his heart, right? He wasn't up there saying, hey guys, I'm here to see if, let's, if everything's real. Let's, let's, you know, let's get the audit sheet out. Let's do some examinations. Uh, let's test your doctrine. No, that's, that wouldn't be the way that he, would doing it. he was doing it. But even in that, even if they would have heard right, that, that the church in Jerusalem are kind of questioning or the reality of this, they responded in love. It doesn't matter. Let's just give. Let's give. Not only that, but they weren't concerned with their own needs. And I think about this, you know, my, my response in the flesh would be, if there's a famine, and, it, and if it's really this bad that we're hearing about, Maybe I should save. Maybe I, instead of giving, I need to save a little bit extra because what about if it comes up here? And what about my family? And what about the church here? But even they were, they were willing to put their own lives, uh, you know, not doing it foolishly, but give of themselves to help others. That's what true love is. Not, not giving for what they could get, 
but giving simply out of love. Because that's, that's the love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. The giving of himself. The giving of himself in, in, out of need that we had. And notice, how did they give? So we see that they gave willingly, they gave lovingly, but each gave according to his ability. There wasn't a set amount. As they were able, they gave. And remember when Jesus and his disciples, when they were in the temple, and, and there was great many there, and there were the religious leaders and kind of the elite, the rich of society, and it says that they were giving huge amounts at that time, they were, they were giving tons of money in, into the um, offering box. And then there was this one widow. She came and she, she put in a, a mite, the smallest amount. And Jesus looks and, and, and he says, she gave much more than all of these others. Because she gave out of the abundant, out of her need even. She gave all that she had. And that's how the Lord would ask us to give. Not a set amount, but out of the abundance of our heart. But I, I just want to, I, I want to give. But I want to give out of response for all that you've already given to me. But I, I want to give. Yeah, that might, maybe I don't necessarily, um, it, it's hard for me to give. I'm a little bit selfish. I'm raising my hand. Right? Or, or, or maybe I don't agree necessarily. Like, I think the funds shouldn't necessarily go to the hungry mission trip or they should be used to do this X, Y, Z. But Lord, I just, I'm going to set all that aside and I'm going to give because I know as I give, Lord, it's pleasing to you. And I know as I give, that's one way that I rid myself of my selfishness is by giving. I'm giving my selfishness away. So I think, you know, as, as uh, Paul and Barnabas, as they took this offering back to the church of Jerusalem, can you imagine what their response would be? I wonder if, if Barnabas had already went back and told, I don't know, we're not told, but no doubt as the church in their great need now and those in Antioch freely and lovingly gave without um, not being um, commanded, not being compulsed to, right? The church in Jerusalem was like, man, this is, this is real. There's no denying it. And see, that's what others, when they see our love displayed in our lives. It's the love of Jesus. There's no, this can't be manufactured. They know the genuineness of what God has done. And so I love this. The Lord working in Antioch, the Lord working in the darkest places as Jesus is shared, as, as Jesus is glorified, and, and then their lives testifying of that. But we come to chapter 12 now, and it's like there's, they're set in... Um, against each other, these two pictures. There's this work that God is doing in and through Antioch. There's great growth there. The reality is, is going on of their faith. Those in Jerusalem are benefiting at it. But then we turn and we move scenes over now to Jerusalem. And there's this persecution that arises in Jerusalem. And we, we started to read it there, but again, we're going to not read through every single verse, but I'm going to, uh, we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 4 again. Now about that time, Herod had the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, 
So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So in the midst of all this, we see God working through Antioch, but now we see God's sovereignty even in the midst of opposition as it arises. The Lord begins to work, and and guys, we can expect opposition to occur. As God begins to work, don't be surprised when things uh, get hard, when, when the trials come. We see this scene shifting. And Herod here mentioned he was an Edomite, and he was looked down on by the Jews. You see, an Edomite would be one who was half Jewish and who was half Idumean. The Jews, you know, kind of, uh, if you've been with us for any time, the Samaritans, right? Why they hated the Samaritans, they, they considered them half breeds, like half Jewish. They were polluted. They didn't have a, few, a full uh, Jewish lineage. So too, uh, King Herod here, he, didn't, he, he was so hungry to crave, and, 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 and he craved and, and wanted the approval of people that being, having some disapproval uh, from the Jews for being an Edomite, he noticed, he, he realized that, man, I can, I can gain their favor, and I can do this. He had James, the brother of John, cut in two. He, he had him killed, and it, he saw that it pleased the Jews there. And so he determines, ah, this is how I can gain their favor. This is how they'll overlook this uh, black mark, per se, on my record, right? He, he craved their approval. And so he, now he comes, James is killed, and he takes Peter. And he's going to have Peter killed, but notice it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So again, Herod, he was Jewish, and he kept the Jewish customs and laws. So he wouldn't have Peter killed during the feast. He was going to wait till afterwards, And so a few things that we see here. We know that James, the brother of John, that he was one of the 12 disciples who who were with Jesus. Jesus at that time, when Jesus went to the cross, right, and he was killed, we know that the disciples that they scattered, they left him. But now we see, as the work continues, that this is the first time that any of those who were close to Jesus were martyred. Yes, Stephen is the first martyr, but I'm talking about the 12 disciples, right? Judas killed himself, he hanged himself. But this is the first time that, that one of those who were in Jesus' inner circle was killed. And it tells us something, that even those who are close to the Lord, or I, I mean, it's not like one person has a close relationship, but who, who, who like we see as being used by the Lord or mighty are still subject to the same difficulties still subject to the same persecutions, the same hardships. Sometimes we, we can be deceived, like, okay, I'm serving you, Lord, I'm on the worship team, or, or I'm setting up the donuts, and now you let this difficult thing happen to me. Well, why? But even those who were close in, in, in Jesus' inner circle, they, they would all be, you know, most of them be killed. But we see this, this is kind of a turning page, this persecution hitting close to home. And just on that note, too, um, you know, many of you have been asking, um, if you don't know, uh, Tim's mom has been declining health. She actually went home to be with the Lord yesterday. And so um, that he was able to, they were able to be there um, with her on Thursday and Friday. 
But, you know, just the reality of it. We will all walk through difficult things. But this is happening in, in the church itself. And they now see how um, this, is, this is a reality for, that, for the church. And so Herod takes Peter. He has James killed. He takes Peter. And in verse 5, we see that Peter was therefore kept in prison. Remember that, that um, Herod didn't want to have Peter killed during the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was against their customs. It was against their laws. So there's this time span now between when um, Herod plans to have him killed and, and they're waiting. And it says, as Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And if you take notes, if you write in your Bible, circle that, the word but there. See, that's, that's a contrast. But is a contrast. There is this thing happening over here for us in this text. Herod had James killed. Herod is in power. Herod is persecuting, harassing the church. Now Herod takes Peter, and, and it seems that without a doubt, as soon as the feast is over, Peter, man, I was going to, never mind, going to say a joke that I shouldn't say. Peter would be killed, but notice the church at that time was in constant prayer for Peter. And this is telling us something. There's two buts in this chapter. We're going to get to the other one down in verse 24 later. But it's one of the keys, this contrast. Herod's, the world's power, the world's working, the seemingly victory of the world standing against the working of God. God's sovereignty in the midst of opposition. See, this, this power, this, this king that is set up is, is compared to and contrasted against a church that prays. A church that is in prayer. And we know that the Lord is sovereign. But folks, it is our responsibility, not only responsibility, but it is our privilege to pray. To participate with the Lord. And I don't fully understand it. Yes, you know, God doesn't need me to pray to accomplish His will, but He invites us to be part of His will by praying. And, and notice in verse 15, as the church was in this constant prayer, as they were, they were praying over these night and day um, for Peter, when, when Peter is freed by the angel, he goes past the guards, his chains fall off, and the gate opens. They had, it was an automatic door, motion censored. He saw the angel just opened up. And, and Peter comes, and now he's free. He didn't even realize he thought it was a vision. He thought he was just dreaming. He didn't think that this was real. And he comes and he knocks at the door where they're all staying. And this little girl, Rhoda, answers the door. And she goes back to everybody else who's in the back room praying. She says, guys, Peter's knocking at the door. He's here. She forgot to open the door. She was so excited. And what was, what was, the, what was the, old, uh, the old curmudgeon's response in the back? Which would, that's where I would be. Come on. That's an angel. That's not Peter. They were so used to seeing angels. They didn't even, it didn't even phase them. They're like, there's no way that's Peter. He's still in jail. Just, you know, go, go back and play. But Rhoda says, no, it's Peter. It's Peter. And it, look in verse 15 with, with me. We read there, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. She kept insisting that it was so. And so they said it is an angel. And as Peter continued knocking, uh, they finally go and realize that it's him. But I wanted to point that out in verse 15, that 
when Peter shows up, when the Lord answers their prayer, they are shocked. They are surprised that their prayer was answered. Yeah. It's a little bit encouraging, right? I'm not saying that it's necessarily like theologically correct that we should not expect our prayers to be answered, but that's the reality, guys. I, we, we struggle with that. We, we pray, Lord, we pray to you, Lord, I know that you're able to do this and I'm going to ask for this, but then I, I still have this just mustard seed of faith. And that's seen in the disciples or excuse me, that's seen in the church when they pray. And when Peter shows up at the door, that can't be. I mean, God really did this. Guys, but that doesn't stop us from praying. That didn't stop the Lord from, from answering their prayer. He doesn't ask us to have the faith the size of a mountain, but he asks us to have the faith the size of a mustard seed that mountains will be moved by. And see, because it's not about me, and it's not about you. But he invites us to use what even little faith that we have and to participate with him in prayer. And so then the question becomes, when opposition arises in the church, in our lives, do we pray? Guys, that is our weapon. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are strong through God and mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And I know, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know the details of every single one's life in here, but I know some of the things that are going on. And I know that we need to pray. And God invites us to pray. And it's so encouraging when you just give it up to him. And I'm so encouraged that he uses even the church who, who didn't expect their prayers to be answered. And guys, let's pray. You know, yes, we have corporate prayer and we invite you to come 7 p.m. on Sunday nights to pray with us, to gather together and pray. But pray, we should be on our needs at home. Guys, we should be leading our families in prayer. It's, it's what God gives us. But notice here, all of this, the Lord's sure victory in this. There's no small stir. They, the, the town there hears about what, what the Lord has done. No doubt, even the government they hear the guards who, who were um, in charge of Peter, they were executed. And the Romans, if, if you were put in charge of someone and they, something happened on your watch, you got their penalty. They were all killed. So words spreading, even in the midst of persecution. God is working. And notice here in verse 20, we see that, again, the world's, the world's opposition, but God's God's guaranteed victory. In verse 20, Then now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blast, or excuse me, Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So that on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and and gave ordination to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of God, not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. So the people of Tyre and Sidon, they wanted food from Herod. 
And so Herod, being the people pleaser that he was, would take anything. Man, these people, I can give them some food, but I want to get some praise, right? And, and they started to say, voice of God and not, not of a man. And Herod, the, the, what, the idea here is that Herod willingly accepted it. Yes, I, consider me a God. That he wanted their praise. And this mighty man who, who had killed James, this mighty man who had had Peter arrested and, and was about to have Peter killed, had the Roman soldiers killed, had all this authority, was on his throne, he had to bow his knee to the king above him, didn't he? See, we see that an angel of the Lord had sh- struck Herod at that time. And he was eaten from the inside out by worms. God's sure victory. Guys, this is encouraging for us. I'm not sure why. We're not told why. Why was James killed and Peter saved? I, I don't know. We're not sure. But know that even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of when the enemy seems to be having their way, when the enemy seems to be having the victory, guys, it's not over yet. And even if we don't see it in our lifetime, see, Jesus is coming as the line of the tribe of Judah. And one day he will make all things right. Opposition, you know, opposition may arise. There might be a day when we can't meet here in this church. Even if that happens, the Lord still sits on the throne. And even if it happens, he will have his way because he is the king and no one can dethrone him. And that's our hope in the midst of difficulties. And, and, in the, and, and until that time comes, we're to be a church that prays. We're a, to be a church that looks to the Lord, that calls to him, and that is willing to lovingly lay down our lives. And if I be killed, I be killed because I know the hope and I know my future is settled in heaven with the Lord. And we are confident in that. And just finishing it out here in verse 24, Herod's killed, but notice... Notice in verse 24, you can circle it again, the other but. But the word of God grew and multiplied. See, God cannot defeat it. Be defeated. Yes, maybe, maybe the church kind of stumbled at the death of James. Maybe had they, they had some difficulty wrestling with that. But through this, God continued to accomplish his work. He grew his church as they simply taught the word of God and shared Jesus with them. So that is our hope, guys. That is our call. That is our exhortation. That's our encouragement this morning. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for um, just this encouragement. God, we thank you that you would use the nobodies to accomplish, Lord, your mighty work. Lord, and that's our heart. Lord, I pray that you would um, open our eyes to see the world that is in darkness. Lord, and to be bold to share Jesus. Lord, not worried about the consequences about the opposition or about not loving our own lives or but laying them down that others might have life so lord we just ask lord i pray if there's anybody that's going through the midst of difficult times this morning that lord you would encourage them or as they they see um, just the testimony of what you've already accomplished and so lord we thank you and we ask this in jesus name